Blog Talk Radio. Greetings and Happy New Year's, and thank you for joining me, Attorney Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry, as we discuss today's episode, Honoring the Men in Blue. I wanted to dedicate this show to New York Police Officers Ramos and Officer Liu, and honor our men in blue. As most of you are aware, I am the daughter, the proud daughter of one of New York's finest. My father served the New York City Police Department for several years before venturing out into his own investigative services business, which included a multitude of clients from around the country and different parts of the world. And so it is in that spirit that I recognize the importance and significance of respecting and honoring the men in blue, notwithstanding my own personal and professional relationships that I've had over the years. I must admit that I am equally disturbed at the fact that there has not been enough people on board with willing to recognize these men as being individuals who protect and serve and respect their communities. And one may ask, well, how did you know that? And throughout the course of this episode, I hope to be able to shed some light on why I believe that they served, respected, and protected the community in which they eventually were subject to being murdered. Again, I want to extend my condolences to the Ramos family as well as the Lou family. And when we return, I want to discuss their murders, their murders, because we don't want to water down what happened to them. I've been reading where they've been slain or killed. These two gentlemen, these officers, were murdered, and we need to call it what it is, in the same way that we want everyone to respect the outcome that we believe transpired with Michael Brown and Eric Gardner, and we'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Attorney Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, Honoring the Men in Blue. I said at the break that I believe that these individuals protected and served and respected the community in which they were murdered, and let me elaborate as to why I believe that transpired. As many of you know, most police officers throughout the United States, particularly in a city like New York, are generally very well trained. And so when an individual is perceived to have let his or her guards down, it is generally going to be predicated upon his or her comfort level with their surroundings. In other words, if you're a dirty NYPD officer, you're always going to be on guard concerning your environment, notwithstanding your training, because you're never going to know when someone is going to attempt to retaliate against you or when calmer will strike. And so to learn that these two officers were seated inside of a vehicle, although they were engaged in surveillance, one would have to speculate that they were so comfortable with the people in their surroundings, and although they were pursuing their employment goals or operating within the course and scope of their employment, I would like to think that one of the reasons why they may not have been properly prepared for the ambush that they were going to encounter that would lead to their murder and death, it would possibly be because they knew the type of individuals in that community who they protected, served, and respected, and they didn't operate in a sense of fear. 
I remember as a child going on a couple of rides with my father. And I remember my father and his partner, quote-unquote Uncle Marvin, having their shotgun in the back. And I remember conversations that I would have with my father as a child and then into my adulthood as it pertains to his service with NYPD. And I remember my father sharing with us an experience where a bullet had gone through his hat and what that made him feel like at that given point in time. And I remember other conversations about when and how he felt at most ease. And a lot of it is where he knew the people in those communities. He worked with them. He respected them. They knew him by Steve or Officer J or Mr. J. And there was a level of respect that he had. And when I learned about the deaths, the murders of Officer Ramos and Officer Lou, I would like to think that they had that same working relationship. And maybe as a result of that, they may have let their guards down in a way where they did not feel threatened by the community in which they were serving. That would eventually lead to their murder and a homicide. What is unsettling to me is that I have not heard from the quote-unquote civil rights leaders who were so concerned about the unjustifiable homicides, the murders of Michael Brown or Eric Gardner, about the murders of Officer Ramos and Officer Liu. That is not something on behalf of the African American Juvenile Justice Project that we condone. And I was very vocal concerning the murders of Eric Gardner and Michael Brown. And yes, indeed, they were murdered. But what we needed to understand then, like now, is that not every police officer is the same. And I've been doing my best to try to articulate that throughout the course of my communicating through the radio show, through public speaking, and community outreach. And this is why I thought it was important that we take the time to recognize and honor our men in blue, lest we become confused and create an environment that becomes so hostile that for every officer who loses his or her life, there are going to be that many officers who will always be on guard. And so that when we do have police citizen contacts or encounters, someone may walk away and someone may not. I remember a couple of weeks ago on the Rick Smalley show when he called upon attorneys to speak out, and I did. But what I had to say nobody wanted to hear at the time, and I say that respectfully because one of the things I said then resonated, and I said we need to be mindful of how and when and if we create a hostile environment that will resolve in someone engaging in a jihad or murder-suicide as it pertains to police encounters. We need to be cognizant of the message that we send through local and mass media as it pertains to police citizen encounters. Most members who have a police citizen encounter are not armed and dangerous. But the police officer is not going to know that because all they do all day, every day, is interact with defendants, suspects, possible defendants, and or, in their mind, criminals. Don't necessarily know when they're encountering you that you're somebody's husband, father, sibling, an honorable person in the community. And it's too unfortunately by the time to find they realize that, that you're already dead. So we have to be very careful. And so when the civil rights leaders become silent concerning the murders of two innocent police officers, where to date there's been no one who has come forward concerning these officers being belligerent, warful, threatening, abusive, and or engaging in police brutality or unjustifiable homicide among the citizens, that we remain silent. 
Yes, it is true that the blue has become a new orange in most inner city and urban and rural communities where we do feel like there is a alert, a high alert, that we feel threatened in our own communities. But that's just few bad apples. That's not the whole. Most police officers wait every single day with the intent to protect, serve, and respect the communities to which they've taken an oath. And, yes, there's always going to be a few bad apples. And as much as we see that from the men in blue, they see that in their police citizen encounters. So what do we do going forward? We recognize these men in blue as authoritative figures. We recognize the jobs that they have. We understand that most of their encounters are not going to be with the ordinary citizen. It's going to be with an individual who generally has been accused of or has, in fact, committed a crime. And that that police citizen encounter is going to be predicated upon that premise and that premise only. We'll be back. New Life FM. I had wanted you all to listen to a song that New Life had on about people being blind and now they could see. And I was really wanting you just to hear a couple of the lyrics from that song as I think it resonates pertaining to the murders of Officer Ramos and Officer Lou and where we are as a country, that many of us are blinded by the circumstances of Michael Gardner and, excuse me, Michael Brown and Eric Gardner, that we've become blinded to the situation of what has now happened to Officer Ramos and Officer Lou where I'm hearing people say, well, it's good for them. Kill the pigs. This is what should happen. And as I had a conversation with someone prior to starting the show, I'm thinking what we're now projecting and what we're now putting out is no better than how most is and most of America reacted to the grand jury verdicts. So I'm wondering, where are the people who are protesting? Where are the college students who were laid out prostrate not wanting to enter in the classrooms or dormitories or what have you? Where are the protesters who didn't want to purchase food from certain companies that they thought would sponsor or otherwise give money to different police departments and PBAs around the country? Where's the outcry? When we get so comfortable and complacent that we're okay with police officers being murdered in the line of duty, we're not talking about the police officer who killed and murdered Eric Gardner or Michael Brown. Maybe those would have been justified. Yeah, I said that. Maybe they would have been justified. If Eric Gardner, being on that ground, chose to grab a firearm because he believed he was being choked out, and he engaged in self-defense, 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 and it led to the death of an officer, that scenario would be totally different than an individual taking it upon him or herself to arbitrarily solicit, find, pursue two innocent officers who are not engaged in any police citizen contact whatsoever, who are merely doing their job. Michael Brown was engaged in mutual combat with an officer whom he believed had shot him once or twice, and he was in a position to engage in self-defense. Then we would look at all of this through a different lens. But are we so blind now that we can't see? Because that's one of the lyrics of the song. Are we so blinded now by our own hate and our anger and our frustration that we can't see the truth. Two innocent young police officers were murdered for crying out loud for unjustifiable reasons. 
Now, I'm not going to suggest, because there hasn't been a lot of conversation about this, and I only like to come to you all with facts, whether the individual who murdered these officers suffered from any mental defects. And as you know, with all due respect, when it generally involves an African-American suspect, that's generally or Latino. That's not a conversation that many of us like to have. We don't immediately allege or try to determine did this person suffer with mental defects. And maybe they did, so I'm going to put that out there. And it's a conversation worth having, particularly when we look at what is alleged to be the facts, and those facts are that he shot his girlfriend prior to coming to New York. We know that allegedly he was on a telephone conversation, and yet to date don't seem to know to whom he was speaking with, if anyone at all. The person probably had a throwaway phone, and that's never going to be tracked or found. So we don't know if this was part of a bigger scheme, if the ultimate goal was just to target a officer or an officer or two or more officers, or if this is such an isolated situation. But it is so unfortunate that here are yet other families who are having the mourn, the murder, the senseless murder of their loved ones, and America is silent. Again, I am the proud daughter of one of NYPD's finest. And, yes, I'm a criminal defense attorney, and, yes, I have a private law practice, and, yes, I deal with officers all the time, competent and incompetent, honest and dishonest. But I also know that the majority of them are hardworking, honest, law-abiding officers every single day with the intent to protect and serve their respective communities without regard to race, creed, or gender. We'll be back. Thank you for joining Attorney Sherry Jefferson with Live with Sherry. What I want to do for this portion of my show is just take a moment to reflect on where do we go from now. We now have a total of four individuals who have been murdered. Two, NYPD Police Department, Officers Ramos and Officer Lou. Hashtag honor the blue. And then we have two other individuals who were murdered, Eric Gardner and Michael Brown. So how do we move forward? How do we move past the hate, the anger, the pain, the disappointment, and the frustration? And do we want to move past that or beyond that? Or are we still in such a vengeful state where it's just going to be the norm, where they kill us, we kill them, they kill us, we kill them, until eventually there's a ceasefire? I would hope that that's not going to be the case. I would hope that we can learn from this, and I think it's to the civil rights leaders and those who have a voice who are able to utilize media, both mainstream and otherwise, to send that message of calm and clarity and consciousness. Because to being conscious about what is transpiring, you then know that every officer is the same, and they go to work just like we go to work, and they want to fulfill their duties just like we do. And they want to operate within the course and scope of their employment honorably. So we call upon that community, that segment, that populace, to speak out and say, this is wrong. And I haven't heard much of that. The next thing we have to do is to educate both the officers and our citizens about how to interact one with each other for police-citizen contact. It is, it is 
there's no dis- there's no disputing. It's just no disputing that we have a lot of officers that are not properly trained. And this is particularly true where you have a lot of white male officers who come into the inner city communities equally see the same in places like Atlanta, Georgia, in the fifth zone, where there's a lot of people who argue and have concerns about how these black officers are interacting with them. I remember back in the day we said Red Dog. And I remember Dungeon Family, and they used to have this hip-hop song, like, one, two, you know, hit the floor, his Red Dog coming through the door, and blah, 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 because they understood that Red Dog were abusive. And this was a predominantly black unit with the city of Atlanta Police Department. When Mayor Bradley was over in Los Angeles, there was equally as many complaints as were in Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia. So I'm not really submitting to the fact that this is always a black and white issue. Because I know all too often that there are as many black police officers who do not properly engage in and interact with other blacks. And, yeah, I know in New York they're all complaining, that oh, they harass us, we get harassed by white officers, we have problems on the New Jersey Turnpike. I hear all of that nonsense, the Verizona Bridge. But I know you guys are getting down, too, from Harlem to Brooklyn to the Bronx. Y'all get busy, y'all disrespectful, you're abusive, and everything else to your own people. And the Latino community and in the African-American, the Dominican, the Jamaican, the West Indian community. So don't act like you guys are so isolated that you're the only ones that are victims. So this is really a color of blue. This is about the men in blue. How do we take the men in blue and properly train them, all of them, to respect and serve? And when, if at all, are we asking you to break that code of silence? When you see one of your officers and you know that that particular officer is violating his responsibility to the community. Because, see, when you stay silent, when you know that officer is doing wrong, then when officers like Officer Ramos and Lou are murdered, the world is quiet. And they think, yeah, they got them. Good. And it's not good. So you then have to make a decision. When do I speak up? And what measures are available for you to speak up? In other words, does internal affairs give you an opportunity not to snitch out one of your offices, but is there a place and an area where you can share? I got a problem with one of my offices. I got this with one of my partners. I see one of the offices do this out of the third without them knowing that you violated that code. Is there a mechanism? Because if we don't give officers an outlet or a mechanism to report dirty cops from inside, And if when they do, they're ostracized, then ultimately we're always going to have bad cops because no one wants to speak out. I know for attorneys, we are required, so they say, I think it's Rule 8.3 or 8.1, when we know that another attorney has done wrong to sort of report it. And there's a lot of us who say, no, we don't want to rat out our colleagues because we know how hard it is for those of us who work to get where we are. So it's easy for people, even like judges, racist judges and otherwise, and I know all too well about that, Houston County Superior Court Judge Katie Lunston, hello, to file frivolous bar complaints against you, and then you have to fight to win them, as I did. And it's not always an easy battle. Sometimes it could take five months, but sometimes it could take five or six years. And you're left there fighting that battle. So then you're constrained to ask yourself, is it worth it? This person lost that many years of their life Was it worth it? Especially when in the end they're not disciplined and they win. 
So what outlets do we afford police officers so that they, too, can report what they perceive to be honestly? Not like the Judge Katie Lumsden's of the world and those associates with her, but real complaints, legitimate complaints, real violations. How do you do that without advancing a self-selving agenda, being racially motivated to do so, or some type of bias or prejudice? And if we give police officers that out, that opportunity, I think we can curtail the number of bad police officers that we have out there. Because we have to honor the men in blue. This has to be about honoring the blue. We cannot ever get that comfortable with police officers being murdered in the line of duty. And everybody's silent. Mass media is silent. So it's okay, it's appropriate for us to be angry about what happened to Eric Gardner and Michael Brown. But it's for us not to be concerned about the murder of two of New York's finest? That they seem to be mourning on their own, isolated in a way. And we're almost sitting back like, ha, 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 good, God got you back. And I don't think quite honestly that their death is God getting anybody back. I'm not God. And I got my own issues in that area. But I'm not God. I'm not God. But I would hate to think that two innocent officers had to be murdered for America to show their tail to the entire police departments around this country with nobody, not the church, not, not the school systems, not the media, n- nobody is speaking out. So how do we resolve this? Do we now allow people to feel like it's okay to open fire on police officers? Because let me tell you what's going to happen. If we stay quiet too long, we're going to get police officers out here getting busy. There was recently reported on World News that there were shiploads of guns being brought through the airports from Atlanta to New York. And it's alleged that those, those guns, those firearms, were ending up in the hands of police officers. That's what we call throwdown, when cops have a possession of a firearm that's not registered to the force. And they use them to implicate people illegally. To say, yeah, I shot him because he had a gun, but the gun you're using is a throwdown. It's an illegal firearm. We don't want to get to that stage. Because at that point, I don't care what blue lights are falling up on you. We all going to be trigger happy at that point. Second Amendment, militia, that's what we're going to become. So we have an opportunity now to use this case or this scenario as a platform to say, how do we honor and respect the men in blue, but honor and respect the citizens in which we encounter? Training is one. Being vocal is another. Keeping these police officers in the communities that they serve. I've been redundant, reiterating the same points over and over again. You need to have community policing. I do believe that if you're in Atlanta, your police officers should live in Atlanta. They should know the community in which they serve. If you're in New York, Westchester County, or any of the boroughs, your police officers should come from that community. I think that has a lot to do with police citizen encounters. I do. And the ultimate goal here is to look at the long-term benefits of trying to develop a plan of action. So residential policing is one of them. Training, allowing, just like every other profession, for police officers to have continuing education and community service. So whereas as an attorney, I'm required to have 12 hours of CLE to make sure that I know my task and I know my job, I think similarly we need to require police officers to put forth annually a certain number of community hours in the communities that they serve. 
be it for the you know the basketball league, the TAL as we used to call it in New York, the police athletic league, be it for them volunteering in a school-based program, even something like their abstinence, a faith-based initiative program, something along those lines. I think we need that because I think if we don't have that, then ultimately what's going to happen is we're going to be so disconnected from the communities in which we serve that the police citizen encounter is going to become exacerbated in a way that it's going to lead to more deaths because the communities are going to be angry and they're going to be bitter. And we need to be responsible about how we deal with that. I'll be back. Thank you for joining me, Sherry Jefferson, on Live with Sherry. And again, Happy New Year. This is the great new year for me. I call it Take Back 2015, and it's through my lens. So a lot of the shows that I'll be doing this year are really a take back. A lot of us have gone through this year and, and the last couple of years, excuse me, with being robbed of everything from our persons, our money, our reputations, our family, our friends. And we haven't fought back. We've been very complacent. So for me, this year through my lens, it's going to be take back. Take back any and everything that has been forcibly taken from me or wrongfully taken from me. I'm taking it back. So I encourage you for 2015 to do the same thing. Make it the year of the take back. Take back any and everything that has been wrongfully taken from you, be it through lies, broken promises, misrepresentations, blatant lies be it in your home, your school, your community. Take it back. Take it back. Don't lay down and settle for anything. Use this as the year to take back. So 2015, through my lens, is the year of take back. And a lot of the shows that you will be hearing me perform or say or engage in throughout this year will be based on that premise. And something else I'll be doing this year that I started doing originally when I had the show many years ago was bring on more guests so that you can hear other people's perspectives. And so I'm already lining up a couple of shows on that basis. And then I'm going to be doing all my shows alive, but I'm going to be using a Skype option that allows for you to actually see me when I'm doing my shows live. I get a lot of people like, do you read a script? Because you always got to flow. If you ever heard me speak live, you know I don't have to rely on any documents. That's been my gift in and out of court. So, no, I don't use scripts or write-ins or anything like that. If I have to recite a particular uh, statistic or data and I don't recall or choose not to recall verbatim for purposes of legal issues, I will rely on that. But my shows are always like water, just liquid, just flowing, and that's the way I prefer to do it. And that's what makes it a blessing when it's live like that. It's not memorized, it's not recorded, and so that, that's the advantage of that. So I wanted to take that time out to remind you that 2015 is the year of the take-back through my lens, and that's what the title of my 2015 is. And I'm encouraging you all to join us. There's going to be some major exciting things that take place. And I also will be flagshipping this year, which basically means um, that I will be joining other live radio casts from around the country who will be broadcasting my show in different parts of the country. And I'm also working on something for a Caribbean island and something in Canada so that my shows will go live on their air. So I'm looking for some positive things to transpire for the 2015 year. With that being said, again, my condolences to the Ramos and the Lou family, who for 2015 things are going to be different. They're going to be really different. A husband is gone, a father is gone, a brother, a sibling is gone, someone's child 
has been murdered. And when the blood of a police officer spills in the streets, be it New York, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami-Dade, or where have you, all of America should be concerned about that. When you have a problem and you need to call 911, who do you expect to show up at your door? Back in the day, Public Enemy used to say, 911 ain't in your town. Well, let me tell you something. If y'all get this comfortable with police officers being murdered in the line of duty, you can hang up calling 911 in your town. And then don't be angry when they don't show up. Don't be angry when they do that they got that hand on that trigger. And some innocent child or person may ultimately end up being murdered because that police officer is now totally operating out of fear. So what do we say? How do we really fix this? I hope, if nothing at all, that I've given at least some kind of guidance, some kind of premise. I can tell you to say a prayer. I've done that. I don't know how well it'll get answered. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, at some point, we have to be able to come to terms that what happened to Michael, Gar- Michael Brown and Eric Gardner is wrong. But two wrongs don't make a right. And I implore any and everybody that has listened to this show or will be listening to this show, hashtag honoring men in blue or hashtag honor the blue. Because we have to honor them. We have to respect them. We have to. We can't be so comfortable with the fact that these men were murdered in the line of duty. Murdered. Not slain, New York Daily News, New York Post. Don't water it down. They were murdered. We didn't want to say that, oh, Michael Brown was killed. No, we wanted it known. He was murdered. We didn't simply say Eric Gardner was killed. We wanted it known. He was murdered. Well, these two gentlemen deserve the same coverage. They were murdered. And it's not my place to determine whether Blasio did or did not handle the situation right. But from all that I could see and all that I could read, he did what any other mayor before him or after him will do. He did what any mayor before him or after him would do and would be called upon and expected to do. So you guys in New York got to cut him some slack. Because I don't know how much of the target on him is based on him having a black or African-American wife and how much of it is based on him just speaking what he needed to be heard and what needed to be spoken. Because after all, he does. He is the father of biracial children, and he has to balance this. He has to see through two different lenses as a father who doesn't want his son out there being the victim of a police citizen encounter, but as a mayor who has to equally have the back and the support of New York's finest. He has to. He has to. And that's the ultimate prayer. Thank you for joining live with Sherry as we discuss today's episode, Honoring the Men in Blue, the murders of Officer Ramos and Officer Lou. I want to conclude the show by basically just highlighting some things that I think that each and every one of us can do to bring about a sense of change and a sense of protection, both for our officers as well as our communities. I already discussed the importance and significance of those who have a voice being able to use them be it civil rights leaders or faith-based. So let me just use the six Ps. As we, as you pretty much know, I, I rely on little acronyms. I think if you, for parents, I think it's important as a parent that you sit down with your children, that you teach them to be accountable and responsible for their actions that resolve in police citizen encounters, that you don't teach them to live in excuses, denial, and justification, 
that you equally teach them how to interact with the police. For example, if they're driving a vehicle, how they need to present themselves to the officer, making sure that the people in the car are respectable, making sure nobody's mouthing off with the officer, making sure that they readily have available their driver's license and registration, that their hands are generally at a 10 and a 6 or, excuse me, 10 and 2, or at a 12 o'clock where the officers could visibly see that. Where possible, depending upon your finances, put a video camera in the car so that you can also monitor these citizen encounters if your children are out at night. You have a responsibility as a parent to have that type of conversation with your child, particularly if you have a son, you know, particularly if you have a son, whether black or Latino, you need to have that conversation. You can't wait until after the fact. You can't have your children out there wilding out. And then as soon as they get popped by a police officer, you want to cry foul or racism or this, that, and the other. I remember being in a particular area in Georgia by a particular store, and it's a suburban community. And I watched the kids, the officers come to the children and ask them to turn their music down. And the young men waited for the officers to drive off and then turn the music back up. And this went on like two or three trips. The officers made coming right back around to the same business district. And by the third time, the officers got out the car and was like, look here, we have told you all to turn this down. So at the point that they tried to cite the kids, the kids started mouthing off, oh, you're being discriminated, you're just attacking us because we're black. And I, he said, I know, ma'am, you see. I know you see. And I looked at the dude like I don't see nothing because I'm disappointed in you, young man, because dude told you three times already, turn your music down. So my point is, we don't get to be disrespectful to law enforcement, and then when they mishandle us, now you want people to see that you can mishandle. Now you want people to cry foul with you and say that they're targeting you. Your music is too loud. You're blasting it in the parking lot in a business district, and they're asking you to turn it down. The first time he asked you, do turn it down. Mothers, fathers, you have the responsibility to do that. Check your children concerning their police-citizen encounter. Next, pastors. Why aren't pastors in church-based, faith-based communities involving local police departments? If you have a member of your church that's a member of the police department, invite him to publicly speak, to host the program or service. Many of our police officers are faith-based individuals. They go to church or to synagogue or to a Catholic, you know, the Catholic, the mass service, mass services. Okay, or MOS, use that as an opportunity or forum, if you will, to engage these officers in their local community. If not, invite them to your church, your MOS, MASS, to be able to speak, your synagogue, to speak to the community at large. Don't disconnect them, invite them, engage them, so that they can also hear some of the things that put the men and women in your church on the altar, crying out to God or lighting candles, if you will, depending upon their faith. Equally so, principals, don't just use SROs in your school in an abusive matter, in a disciplinary matter. Allow them to engage the students, not simply at-risk kids. So if once a month you can conduct an assembly where police are taking questions from students and engaging them, or you make them part of the PTA program where they can answer questions for parents about police-citizen encounters and the like, you can engage these officers and make them as much a part of your school and community as people just seeing them drive by in a car. If we choose not to do any of that, what we ultimately will have happen, what ultimately will happen is exactly the outcry that transpired in the deaths and murder of Gardner and Brown, but equally the silence, the silence concerning the murders of Officer Ramos and Officer Lou.
those three entities, those three P's that give promise, provision, and protection, the promise that police officers are not bad, the promise that they're here to protect and serve your community, provision of what they give back to the community, that sense of safety. Because let's be honest, most of us, if we had a real conversation, particularly in the Latino and the black African-American communities, we're happy when we see police officers. Who would you choose to see? The dude with the hoodie, with the tan hanging nail, walking by you? Or a car load full of two officers? I'm just trying to ask you a real question. The protection that they do give us in our communities when we choose to call 911. So we can't pretend that we don't choose to call 911 because we do. We need them and they need us. We have to be a partner one with the other. We have to collaborate one with the other. So those three entities, and then fourth, the police department. You and the police department, you need to have community outreach programs and services, COPS, community outreach programs. That should be what COPS stands for, community outreach programs. And every police department should have one. That you are equally being proactive in engaging your communities, that you can add a way or means to make your community feel safe and comfortable because the truth be told, you're not simply there to make arrests. You're there to make people feel comfortable, respected, and then safe. So the role of how we train police officers has to be revisited so that officers don't merely go through life through the simple lens of defendant, 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 suspect, 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 defendant, 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 criminal, criminal, criminal. No, we have to change that. We have to enable police officers to get to a place where they say, I am here to protect and serve, to protect and serve, sort of like that student-athlete mentality. You're not just the athlete, you're the student, which means you have to make certain grades, right? So protect and serve. And when you're doing both of those, you need to be respectful and serve. And when you're doing those, you have to be respectful. And that is what we need to be able to instill. Every police department in America should have a COP program, community outreach program. And again, goes back to what I said earlier. Part of your professional development should be that you're able to assert that you've completed at least 20 to 50 hours annually of community service. And that should be part of your job. You need to know the people that you're serving. Because I promise you when you do, you're going to get to that point like, wow, these people are pretty cool. Wow. I haven't tasted that food before. Wow. And everybody here is bad. Wow. We can get our job done because now they trust us to come to us and tell us what's going on in their community. No, and you don't have to use an informant. You don't have to rely on a snitch. They're going to tell you because they respect what you're trying to do for them. And one hand, respectfully, washes the other. So, yes, you then are called upon to respect and to serve. Policing. And we've gotten so far away from that. We've gotten so far away from that. But at the end of the day, when Officer Ramos and Officer Lou are murdered, America is silent. Mass media is silent. Mainstream media is silent. And I know that there have been some who said, well, what if the officers were white? Would this have been different? I don't know. Because let me tell you something. A lot of times when I see men in blue, I don't necessarily see black or white. I just see the blue, that code of honor, a code of honor, that code, a code, C-O-D-E, of honor when I see the blue. 
So it doesn't matter at that point whether you're black, white, Asian, Latino. Interesting, however, that this black male decided to murder a Latino and an Asian officer. So I don't know how retaliatory it was as it pertains to sending a message concerning the murders of Gardner and Michael Brown. And that is not to imply that he should have murdered white cops, but it's just food for thought. Was it just this isolated situation? I don't know, and we probably will never know. But what we know is what we know. And that is that two of New York's finest, two police officers, were murdered in the line of duty. Two young, young aspiring officers who had so much to give the city and their families that for us to be so comfortable and complacent with their deaths is of great concern to me. It's of great concern to me. And I really don't know what may have prevented this circumstance, because you can't say something will prevent it if you don't know why. And because, again, these officers are Asian and uh, Latino, you don't necessarily know if it was a response to just killing police officers straight across the board or if there's something else that was going through this gentleman's head. And because we don't know those things, we can only operate under the premise of if the target was police, then you don't care who the officers are. But isn't it interesting to note that it was so much easier for him to kill a Latino and an Asian officer who he had to know were my quote-unquote minority, as opposed to all the white officers that he may have had between his travels to get to New York. And he never thought or took it upon himself to do anything to them. And that's a whole different topic for another show as it really pertains to how we react to circumstances, that self-hate, if you will. Again, that is not to suggest or imply that he could have or should have murdered white officers, but it's just something to think about how even in our acts of desperation, you're still going to be too fearful to retaliate or respond in a way that would have suggested that this is exactly what you were doing, getting officers back for what happened to Gardner and to Michael Brown. So I don't know if it was just about targeting the blue or if there was something else going on there. But what we know is that two of New York's finest, regardless of their race, ethnicity, they're murdered. And America has been silent. And when I look at the covers of the Wall Street Journal and USA Today and I just see the flood of blue, it's like, wow, we're quiet. We're quiet. As though the media is even saying, well, you had it coming. And what a shame that is. What a disgrace that is. Thank you for joining me, Attorney Sherry Jefferson on Blog Talk Radio.